0: Well, this year we have that rare opportunity to celebrate Chris, Christmas Day on a Sunday. Uh, that doesn't happen very often, but when it does, it's a festive time. These four Sundays that we've observed of ad, Advent, that season of anticipation and repentance and hope, have finally brought us to this day. And we, in this festive time, now turn to Luke's Gospel in chapter 2, as we hear the story of Jesus again. As we hear this story, for many of us, it's, it's just very, very familiar. And we have to work hard to enter into this story as if for the first time. So, so many of us have heard this story from the time we were a young kid. And, um, we have sometimes glossed over the details or imported non-biblical details into the story. And our imaginations have been shaped incorrectly. And what we need to do is to observe the story as the biblical authors give it to us, and then we need to work to respond to it appropriately. So some of you will be inclined to agree with everything that I say this morning, and some of you might have to work to correct some misconceptions about the story of Jesus' birth. But all of us will be presented with the birth of Christ and be forced to consider how we are going to respond to it this morning. So we'll start by considering background information to the story here in Luke chapter 2, and then we'll examine that opening scene in which Mary gives birth to Jesus, and then we'll consider the shepherds and the angelic announcement that they receive. But let's begin by considering the background that Luke gives us. Now for the last three weeks, we've considered the um, historical background and theological background in chapter 1, But Luke draws attention to the historical setting in the opening verses to chapter 2. He points out that there was a decree issued by Caesar Augustus that the whole empire should be registered. So in other words, this Roman ruler issued a decree saying that there would be an empire-wide census. Everybody needed to go sign up saying that they live in the empire. And the reason they needed to do this was because Rome wanted to tax them. You have to know who's in your empire if you're going to take their money. So that's what's going on here. Now, no one would have been pleased with this decree because no one likes to pay taxes. Already, we probably are thinking April is coming. Tax season is coming, and we don't like to give money to our own government that builds roads and does other things for us. These people, the Jews in particular, did not want to give their money to the Roman Empire. It was not their government. Worse This taxation represented the fact that Israel was in exile in her own land. Israel's king was not on the throne. They were not paying taxes only to the temple or to their own nation. They were paying taxes to this oppressor, this empire that had conquered them. And though God had once promised to raise up a king and to restore the kingdom, virtually all hope for that to happen was lost it did not seem like Rome would ever be overthrown. Now, we we don't need any extra biblical sources. We don't need any further um, background information to tell us that Israel hated this taxation. Even if you just read Luke's gospel, think like five times, taxes are talked about negatively. Nobody liked them. And then, of course, ironically, When Jesus is put on trial before Pilate, the religious leaders pretend that they love taxes, and they accuse Jesus of misleading Israel to not pay the taxes. So you see, taxation was a prickly issue in ancient Israel. And it frames Jesus' life. Luke draws a lot of attention to this. At Jesus' birth, there's taxation, and his um, non-biological father complies with it. Later on, when Jesus is tried to uh when they tried to trap Jesus and ask him if they should pay taxes, he says, Yes, you should pay your taxes, but you should also render unto God what is God's. And then at the end of his life, Jesus is accused of inciting rebellion, um, trying to convince people not to pay taxes. The whole point is this: Jesus' entire life is framed by the oppression of the Roman Empire. This king, the promised Messiah, was raised up during a time when Rome controlled everything in Israel. What this is going to show throughout Jesus' life is that God would establish his kingdom while at the same time the kingdom of man looked like it's at the height of its power. It shows us that God's reign is real even when pagans rule the world. We'll return to that idea in a moment but Jesus's life that would bring about God's kingdom would work itself out in unanticipated and unexpected ways. Jesus's kingship overthrows the expectations, surprising everyone who encounters it. Keep that in mind because it will return again. But let's also consider the location of Jesus's birth, Bethlehem, the city of David. Now, I think most tellings of the Christmas story when they point out that Joseph and Mary would have had to travel to Bethlehem, most tellings will say, that was an oppressive thing. You know, that was extraordinarily difficult for them. But the opposite is actually true. If you notice in your text, um, Luke points out that this was the first taxation to take place under this ruler. Well, 10 years later, there was a second taxation that did not allow the Jews to register in their homeland. And as a result, there was a bloody revolt. There, there was a rebellion against that taxation because it didn't accommodate um, this uh, cultural custom that is lost on us, where the Jews would have wanted to register in their, uh, the city of their birth. So what people often talk about as a burden on Joseph and Mary was actually the Roman government uh, giving a concession to Jewish customs. In any case, um, this journey would have been a normal trip It would be hard by our reckoning because we jump in a car and we can travel anywhere we want with ease. Uh, But for them, it would have been just another normal journey back to Joseph's hometown. More than that, we sometimes uh, wrongly imagine the way that this decree would have worked itself out. Um, I grew up always thinking uh, this king issued a decree And everyone that day had to rush home to their their homeland and register like on that very day. Well, it's true that everyone went back to their homelands, into into the city of their birth, but it's not true that everyone went in the same day. Like any other census that took place in the ancient world, and even in ours, people had a whole year to go register. Uh, There wasn't a mad rush to get this done. But they did have to go back to the city of David. Now, I want to suggest that Joseph and Mary probably thoughtfully planned this trip. I I want to suggest that probably Mary was already pregnant when this decree came out, and so they puzzled through what will be the least inconvenient time for us to go to Bethlehem. Well, we could wait till the end of the year, and we could go with a newborn baby, but who wants to do that? It'll be much easier for us to go while Mary's pregnant, take the journey on our own timetable, and then land in the home of a relative, and then the upshot will be that their son will be born in the same town that his father was born in. There would be a really beautiful family connection forged by taking the trip at this time. I, I want to suggest that's what, that's what happened. Joseph wasn't an unthoughtful father or husband who, who didn't plan the journey well. They planned it well, and they did so in order for this baby to be born in the family homeland. Now, this um, location is further emphasized as the city of David. And again, this just forges a connection between this city, King David, and Joseph. If you remember in chapter 1, the angel Gabriel um, announced that Jesus would be the son of David right after we're introduced to Mary, who's betrothed to this guy Joseph, who is of the household of David. So the point is that this location and Joseph's and Jesus' identity all come together. Jesus would be able to claim the Davidic throne because he was a descendant of Joseph, a son of David, and born in Bethlehem, the city of David. This family line legitimizes Jesus' connection to the Davidic throne. Except for one problem. Joseph isn't the dad. Jesus is not actually a Davidite. So how do we puzzle through Jesus' legitimate claim to the Davidic throne if he's not a descendant of David? I mean, this is a hard question, and people have tried to answer it in different ways. You can see the trouble it would cause. If we're saying that Jesus is the, the Davidic king, but he has no biological connection to David, how is that going to work? Well, some people have creatively said Well, Mary was also a descendant of David. So that's how Jesus was able to take the throne. The problem with that is in both Matthew and Luke, Jesus' genealogy is traced through Joseph. And Luke over and over again says, Joseph is a descendant of David. Luke is trying to say that it's by Jesus' connection to Joseph that he can legitimately be the Davidic king. So how can that happen? Well, I think the simplest answer is the best one, and I think it's the most spiritually rewarding. Jesus could legitimately claim the throne of David because he was adopted by Joseph. We don't have a record of a formal adoption, but Joseph was in every way possible, other than biologically, Jesus's father. So much so um, that Luke will record that Jesus was thought to be the son of Joseph, And Luke will even refer to Joseph as Jesus' father in Luke 2.33 without committing any theological error. Joseph was Jesus' dad by adoption. And by virtue of that adoption, Jesus can legitimately claim the Davidic throne. From the very beginning of Jesus' life, we're given a powerful picture of God's identification with the fatherless, and we're offered a demonstration of adoption's ability to forge a real family relationship. Adoption, this picture that becomes like the controlling metaphor for salvation in the New Testament, adoption shows us that we truly become God's children as he adopts us, just as Jesus truly became a descendant of David by virtue of his adoption by Joseph. This shows us then that if the king can truly become a Davidic king if Jesus, by virtue of his adoption, can take the throne. All people, by virtue of their adoption, can belong to the kingdom of God. No biological descent necessary. No one needs to be a descendant of Abraham or Isaac or Jacob to belong to God's kingdom. By virtue of our adoption into God's family, we belong to God's kingdom and the way is paved through Jesus's own adoption. It's hard to overstate the significance of this, uh, both for the, like biblical interpretation as we try to figure out how the covenants relate, but then also in reality, as we think about who we are before God. We are the brothers and sisters of Jesus. That's what the author of Hebrews says. How is that possible? Because of adoption. How is it possible that Jesus became the Davidic ruler? Because of adoption. I think one more point of reflection is in order. Jesus needed to go to Bethlehem, or Joseph needed to go to Bethlehem in compliance with Caesar's decree. But he also needed to go to Bethlehem in order to fulfill the prophecy recorded in Micah 5.2. The prophet wrote, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, you are small among the clans of Judah. One will come from you to be the ruler over Israel for me. His origin is from antiquity, from ancient times. So there's this prophecy that indicates the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. And certainly God could have drawn Joseph and Mary there in any other way. You know, they they could have gone there for any other reason. But God uses the decree of this pagan king to bring about the fulfillment of the prophecy that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. While Caesar was trying to assert his dominance, God asserted his providence over Caesar by allowing that decree to be what places Mary and Joseph in Bethlehem so the Messiah would be born in that location in fulfillment with the prophecy of Micah. But throughout human history, God's people have been regularly vexed by the way that human rulers rule. Christians are often troubled by the oppressive rule of pagan governments. But texts like this one remind us that Christians do not need to fret when governments overextend their power or exact tribute or um, issue decrees that are burdensome to God's people. That's because God has always been working to turn evil intentions into God's good purposes. Here we have a beautiful example of God's providence over a pagan king to bring about his desired ends. That's a word of hope for us as we observe world powers and government leaders who fail to act in ways that would bring glory to God. We can trust that God will bring glory to himself regardless of how these individuals act. So that's the background to this story. God is providentially in control, bringing about his good purposes, even as a foreign king rules over Israel. So then the scene shifts to the birth of Jesus. Surprisingly, for all that the birth of Jesus has been amped up to be, there are just a couple of verses that describe what happens. We get almost no detail, no major birth story, just the stated fact that it happens. We are given a couple of details, but Luke opens the scene in this way. Um, While they were in Bethlehem, again, they've already been in Bethlehem, There's no emergency pregnancy on the way as they're at the outskirts of the city. While they are there, it came time for her to give birth. This is the same language that Luke uses to describe Elizabeth's birth in the uh, birth of John in the first chapter. And it just indicates that situation is normal. Baby is ready to come, and baby came. He was born. She gave birth to her firstborn son. And here are the only details that we get. She wrapped him tightly in cloth and laid him in a manger. And then the reason he's put in a manger is this. There was no guest room available for him. Now, I just have to forewarn you, we're going on a little bit of a historical dive here to try to get this story straight. When it says that Mary wrapped Jesus in cloth, there nothing extraordinary is happening there. That was just a normal practice. When a baby's born, you wrap them up in cloth. Uh, It's just a a normal practice. What was abnormal is that they put Jesus in a manger. Uh, That isn't the normal thing that you do with a newborn baby. You don't stick them in a manger. You maybe put them in a crib or something like that. So let's consider that detail. Um, Our translation uses the term manger here, but it's probably better translated as feeding trough. This is not a huge deal. Uh, publishers of Bible translations in this text often keep manger just to keep that traditional language alive. But in every other instance in the, trans, in the Bible, they translate that term feeding trough. That's what should come to mind. Not like um, a wooden plank nailed together that puts, you put straw in, but a, a stone feeding trough that animals would eat out of. This is kind of what we should imagine. Uh, More importantly, though, we should consider other places in the Bible where feeding troughs make an appearance that have a connection to Jesus' placement in the feeding trough. I think the most important appearance of feeding troughs in the Bible in connection to Jesus is the one in Isaiah 1-3. There, Isaiah laments that Israel has rebelled against God. Um, God's nation, Israel the nation that he identified as his firstborn son, no longer knows God. They do not recognize him or his kind provision for them. So in Isaiah 1.3, the Lord laments. He says, the ox knows its owner and the donkey knows its master's feeding trough. But Israel does not know me. My people do not understand my provision. Israel did not recognize their God even in their times of plenty. In fact, Israel time and time again in the Old Testament would attribute times of plenty and bountiful harvest to these false gods. So the prophet Hosea wrote this. Um, Israel does not recognize that it is I who gave her grain, the new wine and the fresh oil. Israel over and over again did not realize that it was God who was filling the feeding troughs. They didn't know their Father. But God mercifully um, would visit his people even in their rebellion. Often he would bring about a famine, as he warned in Deuteronomy 8, and then he would visit them with food. So this is the exact language that's used in Ruth 1.6 when there was this time of famine in Bethlehem. And then God visited his people with food. at the time of Jesus' birth, Israel was not experiencing a famine of food, but they were basically in exile in their own land. And in an act of mercy, God once again visited his people with food. This time, instead of filling the feeding troughs with grain, he fills it up with himself. The town of Bethlehem, whose name means house of bread, finally lives up to its name as it houses the bread of life jesus in this way luke uniquely pictures jesus as the visitation of god giving bread from heaven jesus in the feeding trough is bread for the world luke picks up this imagery again as he describes that passover scene where jesus offers his disciples bread and identifies it with his own body that will be life for them and for the world. Jesus, the bread of heaven, is first presented that way in a manger, and then on the cross as he's remembered in the Lord's Supper. That's the detail we should grab onto when we think about Jesus placed in a feeding trough. He's presented as bread that gives life to the world. So when you go home and you look at your nativity scene and you see Jesus laying there, it's certainly fine to think, what an adorable baby. But also think, God has provided life-sustaining food in Jesus for the world. We need to, though, move on to the next detail. Why he was placed in a feeding trough is explained by this one line. There was no guest room available for him. So there's no guest room available for this young couple. They have this newborn baby, and they place him in a feeding trough because it's the most crib-like location for Jesus to sleep. Now the picture derived from that explanation that captivates the popular imagination is that Jesus was born in a cave or in a barn after a desperate Joseph and Mary were rejected time after time, unable to find a room in an inn. Contrary to popular opinion, that notion is simply not true. Um, that telling of the birth story comes from a non-canonical book called the Proto-Evangelium of James that was written 200 years after Jesus was born. So this guy um, tried to fill in the gaps and add some details and make the story a little more riveting. And 200 years after Jesus was born, uh, he, he writes down this telling. It's kind of like people who do the same in modern storytelling. So whether it's a movie The Nativity or maybe The Chosen or something like that, we fill in the gaps with details to make a good story. And that can be fine as far as it goes. It could be spiritually enriching, but eventually those details can uh, misshape our imagination of the events as they happened. So we need to correct this wrong notion step by step. So first, we need to remember that this registration was not a one-day event. Um, The images of a crowded Bethlehem, a hasty and unprepared trip, and the inability to plan for Jesus' birth are inaccurate. Um, That full year would have been allowed for this registration. It would have been a well-planned journey. Second, as mentioned earlier, Joseph and Mary were not surprised by the pregnancy. Um, Ancient people, believe it or not, knew about the length of a pregnancy. They they could track, uh, generally when people get pregnant, it takes this long for the baby to come. Joseph and Mary were smart enough to be able to plan the trip. And then the upshot would be that Jesus would be born in his non-biological father's hometown. Um, Third, in a culture driven by hospitality, you would have been shamed if you turned anyone away, much less a pregnant woman and her husband. Um, This idea of a grumpy innkeeper who kept turning Jesus away That guy would have been shunned by everybody for turning someone away like that. Um, Our culture is not a hospitality culture, so that's lost on us. Um, But in that world, especially with Joseph's heritage, he could have shown up at any door and said, I am Joseph, the son of, and give his genealogy, and anyone would have welcomed him in, no matter how cramped the space would have been. Fourth. Although there were inns or hotels and operations where travelers could stay, where they could rent a room, Luke does not say that Joseph and Mary went to an inn. Um, That's a mistranslation in a lot of Bible translations. Most of them have corrected them. The problem is that it brings about such a sentimental image that a lot of Bible translations will keep the word in there and put as a footnote, guest room. They put the accurate translation in the footnote, I'm thankful for the Christian standard Bible that happened to do, do what's right here and say guest room. Um, Luke says that no guest room was available for him. Now, I just will reemphasize my point because I know this might overturn some commonly held beliefs. Uh, there is a word for in in Luke's gospel, and it appears in the story of the Good Samaritan. It doesn't appear here the word that appears here is the same one that appears when Jesus tells his disciples to go to the guest room that he had arranged for the Passover celebration so that they could prepare for it there. We don't translate that word in in that occasion, and that should help us as we get to this text. So what should we make of Luke's note that there was no guest room available to them? Here, archaeology aids biblical studies in what? All ancient readers would have just intuitively known because they knew what houses were like back then. We need archaeologists to explain to us. And they've done a good job uh, doing so. They've demonstrated that most homes had three rooms in them. One room off to the side or up above is a secondary level would be a guest room. And then there would be a main room, a family room, where people would live and eat and sleep. Now, that idea is so foreign to us because most of us came here today from homes with a bunch of rooms in them. And, you know, some of you kids even have your own private bedroom. But imagine everybody slept together in this family room. Um, Think little house on the prairie, like log cabin, like everything's condensed. Well, next to that family room, as part of the house would have been an animal room. There would have been some stairs that lead out, and then the front door to your house would have started by going in that animal room. And at night, you would bring in your animals, like your donkey or your ox or whatever else you have. You'd have some smaller animals as well. And in those rooms, there would be two mangers or feeding troughs. For the little animals, there would be one down in that animal room. For the bigger animals, there would be a stone feeding trough either hewn into the floor or placed up there for the big animals to reach their necks into that room either through a hole or just through that open space where they would have been able to eat. So it would have looked something like that. It may be hard to uh, see clearly, but you can see there's an ox sticking its head through the hole in the wall, eating out of the manger, the feeding trough in the family room. So Luke is trying to say this. I think we could um, reconstruct the situation in this way. Joseph had probably arranged to stay with a family member in Bethlehem. However, that family member already had other families staying in town, probably an older, more revered family member who would have gotten the pride of place in the guest room. However, they found a way to make do, like any other family would in this situation. Mary and Joseph could stay in the family room because the guest room was full. So probably they're sleeping in there, they're staying in there. And then it came time for Mary to give birth and an experienced relative probably helped with the delivery. And since Mary and Joseph were already staying and sleeping in the family room, it made sense to repurpose this manger as a crib for the newborn baby. It's a little bit of a different depiction of the Christian uh, story of Christmas, but it's much more accurate. So what are we supposed to take away from this uh, reconstruction of the Christmas story? The main point is this, that Jesus was born in humble circumstances, entering the world like almost any other children that year in Bethlehem did. Jesus shared in the common experience of our humanity. Now, all of the um, Roman emperors who had royal children born, they would have been born in the lap of luxury. But Jesus was born as the common person. And in this common birth, this, uh, this kingship throws off all expectations. It's not what people would have expected. They would have expected this baby, the royal heir, the Messiah, to be born in a palace. But instead, he was born in the home of a commoner. The contrast between the humble condition of Jesus' birth and the wealthy human rulers whose children would have been born in a nice place makes the point that Jesus uh, would be a different kind of king. And it should put into check our desire to associate with the wealthy and the powerful. We need to remember that the servant is not greater than his master, so he should not be um, expecting to be more comfortable with, than his master. Our takeaway, in part, should be that we as Christ's followers should not demand a life that was that's cushier than his was. Jesus lived a normal life. This point is especially relevant as many of us give and receive gifts and capitalize on holiday shopping deals and embrace a season of extravagance that ironically intends to celebrate Jesus's humble and unremarkable birth. This picture's potential to convict is strengthened when we recognize that so many Christians throughout the centuries and even today in our modern world inhabit the life-threatening conditions of war, poverty, and lack of daily bread while they celebrate Christmas today. Now we should receive whatever gifts we're given along with the other comforts that God has blessed us with but we should receive them with open hands, ready to share what we possess with those who are in need. We should take to heart J.C. Ryle's wise counsel when he wrote, when the love of money begins to creep over us, let us think of the manger at Bethlehem and of him who was laid in it. Such thoughts may deliver us from much harm. When we think of the baby Jesus in a feeding trough, When we allow our affections to be shaped by that story, we can loosen our grip on money and possessions and comfort. We can be free of their possession over us. Well, the story progresses quickly to heaven's announcement to the shepherds. Luke doesn't linger at the site of Jesus' birth. He shifts immediately to this nighttime watch of shepherds in the area. Now, once again, popular tellings of the Christmas story have misrepresented these shepherds, claiming that they were social outcasts, of despised by the common person. Some have even suggested that they were as disregarded as prostitutes would have been. However, those claims are false, and they're based on the way that Aristotle talked about shepherds, which has nothing to do with how Israelites felt about shepherds. There are some writings from 200 years later where shepherds are spoken of negatively, but that evidence has nothing to do with the attitude of New Testament time period Israel. It would be like us trying to say that the way we feel about something is the same way that the founders of the United States of America felt about something. A lot of time has passed, and it has no bearing on um, what the people actually thought about shepherds. Instead, they were simply common people. They were regular people. Uh, Instead of being despised, they represent the average person. And remarkably, it's these average people that the angel of the Lord visits. It's not the religious elite. It's not the ruler of Rome. It's the average person indicating that this message is for the normal person. It's not just for the wealthy, it's not for the elites, it's for the common man. Well, when this angel appears, these shepherds are understandably terrified. Um, They're just going about their daily business. But the angel puts their fears to rest, making clear that the visit is positive. The angel was there to proclaim good news or good tidings. This is the same word that we often translate gospel. Now in the Greco-Roman world, the term good news was uh, the term that was used to talk about the announcement of a royal heir that was born. Or when a new king took the throne, Uh, a messenger would go out across the empire, messengers would be sent everywhere with this good news or good tidings of great joy. And it was that a royal heir was born or that the king had taken the throne. Well, the angel proclaims that a different king has been born. It's a gospel of great joy. And this joy will be for all people, regardless of social status or wealth or family heritage. And the proof of that is that the first recipients of the gospel were third shift shepherds. This is what they heard. Today in the city of David, a Savior was born for you. Every time we read that story, that personalization comes through once again. We ought to identify with the shepherds and hear that same voice. Today, a Savior was born for you. It's a message not just for the shepherds or even for Mary and Joseph, but for us. A Savior is born for us. Now, these shepherds are given a sign as well. Um, They'll find this baby wrapped in cloth, lying in a manger, and this sign would verify that their message about Jesus was true. The message is this, that this baby is a Savior, the Messiah, the Lord. This isn't just any baby. This is the promised Son of God who would establish God's kingdom and bring about the redemption of Israel and the entire world. And that sign would verify it. Well, the story continues as the shepherds respond to the announcement by immediately looking for the sign. We don't know how they found the right home. We don't know how they found the baby Jesus. All we know is that they got there. God made sure they got there and they saw the sign and it was exactly as the angel had just told them. We see this admirable response of obedient faith, and in fact, the whole story now shifts to cause us to consider how we might respond to the birth of Jesus. We're given three examples of responding appropriately to Jesus's birth: first, with the shepherds; then, with the, those who listened to the message; and then, finally, with Mary. In addition to the shepherds' immediate obedience where they went to find the Christ, they reported the message that they were told about Jesus. Part of their response was to share the good news that they had received with others. This news about the Savior, the Messiah, and the Lord was too good to keep to themselves. They carried these tidings on and shared them with others, saying the same word that they heard. Today, a Savior was born for you. Now, it's not without cause that the angels appeared to shepherds who became the first witnesses to the Gospels. In Israel's scripture, Israel's shepherds were critiqued. Now, these are spiritual shepherds. They're critiqued for not feeding God's people. Ezekiel 34 lambasts Israel's spiritual shepherds. Well, now there are real shepherds who are leading people to the bread of life, Jesus. They're showing them where they can find true food that will bring about true life. In the shepherds, we're given an example of witness to Jesus. And we're also given a summons to come and find Jesus, life for the world. But then the listeners also respond. They give an appropriate response as they respond with amazement to this message. They're not amazed that it was shepherds reporting the good news. They're amazed at the good news at the content of the gospel, that a Savior, the Lord himself, has come to earth. Amazement is an appropriate response to this gospel message. But then finally, we're also given the response of Mary. Specifically, she responds with careful reflection and meditation, treasuring up this message in her heart. Even though she had already once heard this announcement from Gabriel, It seemed that the picture was not altogether clear to Mary. These words added to her unfolding understanding of who her son would become. In this way, Mary becomes a model of gospel meditation. She illustrates someone who knows the truth, but is receptive to continuing to think about it and to allow that truth to unfold over time in her life. But she does not boil down her understanding of the message. She doesn't check a box saying that she got it. No need to think about it again. Instead, she allows this message to master her thoughts and affections as she treasures it up in her heart. In this way, she provides a good example for us, especially for those of us who know the Christmas story and who have heard about Jesus before. We don't check off the box. We continue to treasure these things up in our hearts. This birth story doesn't give a lot of space to the actual birth of Jesus. Instead, it gives a lot of attention to how we ought to respond with these three examples. Examples of belief, obedience, witness, amazement, and treasuring it up in our hearts. So at the closing of this narrative, each of us are left with the question, how will you respond to the birth of Jesus as you celebrate on this Christmas day? Will you respond with forgetfulness, allowing Jesus to pass from your thoughts, to be pushed to the margins as you rush home and go about the activities of the day? Or will you intentionally pursue a response of obedient faith and deep meditation on Jesus' identity as Savior? messiah and lord now traditionally uh, christians have celebrated christmas not just on one day but over 12 days so if you're familiar with that really annoying and repetitive song the 12 days of christmas that's because christians for over a thousand years have celebrated a season of christmas not just the day of christmas i want to encourage you whether you mark out 12 days exactly to celebrate Christmas or not, I would encourage you, as you go from this day forward, to intentionally reflect on who Jesus is, to thoughtfully respond to Jesus' birth this Christmas season. May we begin doing that together as we join to sing, All Glory Be to Christ, and as we come to the communion table this morning, reflecting on Christ, the bread of heaven. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his presentation in a manger, teaching us that the bread of life can be found nowhere else, teaching us that hope for humanity, that the King of heaven can be found in no other place but in Jesus himself. So would you cause us to respond appropriately, and in that way would all glory be given to Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.